Hi, I'm Melissa Withers, and this is Unfounded. In each episode, a guest and I tackle a topic about biz building and startup culture, but we do it by asking each other only three questions, one about the past, one about the present, and one about the future. The third question, the one about the future, that's the wild card. We have not shared this question with each other in advance. And that's it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi, Zoe Barry. Thank you so much for being on my show, Unfounded. Uh, So happy to have you here today. Uh, Our topic today is hot garbage, deals gone bad. Uh, And as we were talking before I hit record, the words hot garbage are really difficult for a person from Rhode Island to say without um, sounding like a cartoon character. Uh, So I worked really hard to say, hot garbage, deals gone wrong. So uh, we have three questions uh, with which we're gonna explore this topic. One looks to the past, one speaks to the present, and one leans into the future. And as you know, I know you know that we've given each other a peek at questions one and two about the past and present, but question three, the one about the future, that's the wild card. Um, and we have not shared that question with each other in advance. Uh, and again, as you know, uh, no formal bios on this show. Uh, if you, uh, any watching, anyone watching or listening wants to learn more about Zoe's incredible career as an entrepreneur and as a founder, you can check it out in the show notes. But instead of bios, I've asked Zoe to pick three words to describe herself before we jump into the conversation. So three words, Zoe, that's it. That may have been the hardest question, by the way, Melissa. So thank you for having me on the show and, and forcing me, you know, strunk and white, admit needless words. Uh, so the, the three that I picked were hustler, mentor, and fighter. Hustler, mentor, and fighter. I, I have to say that that intro is a little self-serving <laughs> because I was, I'm like always excited to hear if people like the three words and like so far, like, yeah, like I, I mean, I don't need to validate your identity, but I agree. <laughs> like, 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 no, you are those, you are many, many other things. Um, you, you contain multitudes, but you are definitely those three words. Um, so Zoe, you and I have spoken a lot about the relationship between founder and investor. Um, we've worked together on easy issues, thorny issues, and downright horrifying issues. Uh, And I think um, I have really learned a lot uh, through my friendship and also my work with you um, as uh, peers and then also with some of our, um, the different things that we've done. And I I know that you and I have also talked a lot about how women founders and investors see the past and how that informs our view of the future. So I just can't think of anybody else I'd rather have this conversation with about uh, deals gone bad than you. Um, So we're going to start by looking to the past. Um, What's the worst advice you ever got about fundraising or dealing with an investor that you put into action before you realized it was hot garbage? Uh, and how would you handle it differently today? Sure. Uh, excellent question. I had so many, maybe it's a good or bad thing, but I had so many examples. I was like, which one do I choose? Um, I think uh, an easy one that maybe some people can relate to is this concept of blitz scaling. So go raise a hundred million dollars and have a war chest. Uh, I think what no one really talks about is, you know, there's the valley of death where the first, uh, you know, year 90% of startups fail. That is super well documented. And it's all over the news and the stats and, you know, startups run out of money. 
the hot, hot garbage component is go raise a war chest. Um, and what people don't tell you is that there's a second valley of death that's like the post series C to IPO valley of death, which is a horrifying valley of death because you have raised so much money and you've had people who are at your company for a very, very long time. And the reality is that most acquirers have budget between 50 and $100 million to buy a startup. And if you cross that threshold of $150 million valuation, you are in what I consider the second valley of death, which is you have to keep going and you have to IPO, or you have to be such a thorn in someone's side that a Google or Facebook or someone with pretty much a carte blanche checkbook can buy you. And that is not well-documented in startup land. And as I've paid more and more attention to it, I think the concept of just blitzscaling and not trying to build a product that people pay for and hit that escape velocity and not talking about revenues, which is such a um, startup thing to do. And I think you can probably appreciate that with your rev up fund. If you yeah, focus sure. on. Um, Amen. But I, yeah, the, the second valley of death and the, and the risk of blitzscaling and what happens later on that's not well talked about because it's almost like bragging rights if you can raise a lot of money and get the yeah. investors. Yeah. Um, and I think the hot garbage component is you can actually make way more money and be much more successful, much happier, return more money to your investors and your team members if you are focused on trying to hit that 50 to $150 million exit price point. Boom. Yeah, I would say the uh, just raise money for the sake of raising money is a steaming pile of hot garbage. So yeah, I agree. Um, I designed this segment and I'm not supposed to respond. I cannot help it. I've responded now to every single one. And I now realize every question can just go on and be like its own segment, which is probably maybe what we'll all do. So, okay, your turn. Hit me up. The past. All right. Um, my question for you, have you ever had a deal go south? Do you still speak with that founder or entrepreneur? So like you, there is no shortage of uh, <laughs> top of mind exemplars of deals gone, deals gone sour, right? Or gone bad. And I think that's probably another myth in startup land is that there's only one way that deals go bad. And that's like, that's if a company dies or if, um, if some, but there's really a thousand ways for a relationship between an investor and a, and a company to go upside down. Um, and uh, so much of that is around misalignment around, um, around the goals, the objectives, the needs of the company, right? So there really are so many ways that a deal has gone bad. I definitely have had deals gone bad. Um, and I've had some go bad now where I can look back and laugh, but I can assure you, I was not laughing when it happened. Losing, um, losing investors' money is, is not comfortable or fun. Uh, and then also there's a human reality where, um, you know, like you're, you're working with a company, you're investing in them. And if, if something happens that, that you really feel like they did something um, bad, it makes you angry and you feel like you just, you feel really bad about it. Um, probably the weirdest deal that I ever had. And I mean, I mean, we've had lots of companies just die, but you've heard me say that startups do one thing well, it's die. Um, so like it, that's not a deal gone bad. That's just the risks of investing in early stage companies. So when I think about deals going bad. It's when the relationship really soured or where um, something where the company really did something that violated our, our trust. And um, we had a company uh, early on uh, in the rev portfolio that just, 
took the money and did something with it that had absolutely nothing to do with what we were investing in. It's the first time in my life that somebody actually took the money and just did something else with it, not what I thought they were going to do. And it all sort of rolled out in this very awkward meeting that I had happened to bring uh, one of our third partners to uh, for fun. It was in New York. And I like, oh, let's have a trip to New York together. It'd be so much fun. We go to this meeting. I'm like, oh, you're going to meet this company. They're so great. Um, and we sat down and right. And it was like, I, I, I had lost all control, like over, I got, like, it was one of those very humbling moments where I, I realized like, you have no control. You really think you do. And it just kind of flopped out that the money was gone. They had built something else and they wanted us to get excited about it and put more money into this other thing that they had built with the money that we'd given them for that thing. And I just like, I, did, I, I was, I was looking at my other partner, like with a, like I, I had never, I didn't, I was, it was almost comical. I was like, you just found I was, think that you would be proud of them and excited. For their yeah, it was, yeah. They, they were like, let us, let me tell you what we did, but hold, don't panic. Cause now there's this tremendous opportunity over here for you to invest in. Uh, and it was not a tremendous opportunity and we did not invest. And I remember walking out into like a busy Manhattan street and I didn't know how my other partner was going to react. Um, cause he's not an operating partner and he's a friend or whatever. And he was like, oh, let's get a drink. And I was like, oh, sweet baby Jesus. Oh yeah, it, and it, but, and it, but in seriousness, it was like, you know, one of those moments where I had a bad feeling about that team at the very last minute. I had one of those red flag fields, like where I got in. Yeah, and it just, we talked ourselves out of it because we wanted to get this, this part of the fund deployed. And yeah, it was a train wreck. Um, so yeah, that's it. Um, anywho, okay. So now we are going to the present day. We are in the present day, uh, Zoe Barry. Um, and here's my question for you. So heroes are cultural gold in startup land. Uh, and stories about amazing women founders are starting to percolate into the zeitgeist, but the pantheon of startup icons is still pretty much a sausage fest. How did this affect your journey as a founder? Um, let's see. I think early on what, well, I guess it's present, present day, right? So I'm going to reflect a little bit, but talk about today. So I think um, early on, I had to find those female founders who were working and building a company for the, for the first time. And you certainly see the, the inequity between valuations and governance and who gives up more and gives up more board seats and, and things like that. But I was always told it would be easier the second time around. And I'm living this present day of this serial entrepreneur who was an exited founder and has assembled an all-star team. And I was expecting to have earned my stripes the first time around and be treated a lot better the second time around. And it's really astounding to me that I am being treated still like a first-time founder. I'm not going to- Can I ask a sub-question about your question? Totally yeah. breaking format here. Because I, do you think that's because the stories we, we, got, we were told about serial founders were maybe a little uh, blown out of proportion, or do you think it's another kind of uh, just the sort of underscoring the dynamic, the different experience that women founders have um, in navigating this landscape? I think women founders are still so rare that when people see them, they immediately assume that they're less experienced. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even if you see, it's, it's a, even if I say I raised $42 million for my first st startup, it was acquired by a large publicly traded company. I've gone through an exit. I've seen what that's like, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, even when I say that, I get paired with associates at VC funds the second time around that are younger and have less experience than I do. And it's very much like, what the fuck? And, yeah. you know, I yeah. thought I earned my stripes already. And 
uh, it's really interesting to see. And I've just been using it more as a litmus test. How do, how am I viewed? Am I actually viewed as a, um, as a serial entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, or am I still put into that first time founder bucket? And yeah. I'm, I know I founded my first company when I was 26. So I was very, very young. I'm now in my mid thirties and it's weird because I still get treated like a 22 year old. Yeah. Yeah. And I, there's not really a lot that I can do. I mean, I try to drop these hints. Like I've rolled a couple hundred thousand dollars of my own money into my startup. I am yeah. not a 22 year old kid or I'm an LP in several VC funds. Yeah. I.e. Yeah. a young kid. I think that, that shows you that's the absence of those culture, like of those stories. You're not getting likened to these archetypes, right? You're, you're just no. kind of, yeah, it's like really it's, interesting. So. It's interesting how it's cotton in some people's ears. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, they have the freaking cap table. They can see that I definitely invested yeah. $100,000 into my second startup. Nobody is doing that unless they are a successful serial yeah. entrepreneur, right? Or they're later in their career. So you're just, I'm just, you could pay attention and see that I'm not a kid, or you could just have cotton in your ears and still treat me differently. I think what I- All right, we got to stop. We got to move on. Oh, all right. <laughs> we're, we're over time. Uh, okay, uh, present, your turn. Hit me up. Um, what is your secret weapon in negotiations? Do you have a specific superpower or many? So- well, first of all, the question implies that I that I have some. So I, the question is uh, in and of itself uh, makes me feel really good. Um, I, mean, I, th I, I think where I feel most confident um, and where I've worked the hardest is on my ability to kind of see a story in a couple different ways and to try to um, hear a story in a couple of different ways. And so as someone who always loved uh, language and storytelling, my whole career has just been all about narrative, whether it was in life sciences and startups and investing, all about the story. And I think sometimes when you're in the middle of your own story, you, you can't hear, you, like it's like it's like hot fuzz, you know, you can't hear the way the story lands on the listener. And I think when you can bring someone into that space with you and they can quickly understand your story, but without losing, uh, without losing touch with all the other ways that story might be heard, I think that can be really powerful. And it's something that I didn't have when I was a founder. Um, you know, I certainly um, just didn't have that kind of resource. It's a, a, it's, and I, I think when I'm thinking about how to get outcomes uh, particularly as it, it relates to working with companies and helping them navigate you know, issues and, and success, Sometimes just being able to hear a story, flip it around and say it back in a way that exposes all the alternative ways of story. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> or, or, like, and sometimes, sometimes I can take a story and flip it around and uh, someone is like, oh my God, that's a really good story. And I'm like, it's your story. <laughs> like I just flipped it around, right? And then other times, yeah, when you're negotiating around difficult issues with it, particularly when I think about the founder investor issue, you know, sometimes it just helps to have somebody else who can do that. And not, as, not everyone can do that. Not everybody is, is as, as, as excited about storytelling that where they'll want to get into it and kind of dissect it. So I feel um, very um, grateful that that's a job I get to do now because I know that I struggled with it as I was coming up. I, I did not, I knew my story was holding me back, but I didn't have a lot of resources to get better at telling it. And so it's, it really, um, it feels very fulfilling to know now that when I'm advising companies or working with them, I can, I can play that role. So I really like that a lot.
Um, all right, we're, it, we're it's doo -doo 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 into the future. Um, yes. And I realized my second question to you was a little bit uh, past oriented, but you did a very good job flipping it around. Uh, so looking into the future, time machine. Um, and it's it's funny because uh, you didn't know what this question was, but it really builds off of um, the, the question that you just answered. Uh, as a serial female founder, you are creating a new archetype. There just are not that many of you out there. And we don't have a lot of stories about that experience. Um, and we know that stories inform how people behave. So when you think about that, uh, what would you most like to change about how investors and founders work together to create a better experience for the women who are coming up behind you? So I think one thing I've been doing with my, so I'm, I'm looking ahead about what could change, but I'll talk just very briefly about something I'm doing right now is I'm looking at my angel investments and I primarily invest in, in women, uh, founders or minority uh, led teams. So the, the, the white dudes, there's plenty of investors out there for you. I'm not one of them. Um, the thing I'm looking, I've been looking to get, get parity on is get women equal term sheets. So it's not just, did we both raise a million dollars? It's did we raise a million dollars on equal terms? And so the thing that I would mm. encourage um, investors to do that I know I'm trying to actively do that in my own fundraising is to really look at the data and see if they're backing women and men on equal terms and have their own sort of re internal review. You get a lot of these like 360 degree questions. Are you happy in the portfolio? I'm personally curious, like, how do I stand in your portfolio? Am I funded equally or did you like, did your clause come out in your negotiation? Yeah. Yeah. But associates on every serial entrepreneur, just a select few. Are you requesting board seats for a million and a half dollars for everybody or just yeah, a select yeah, yeah, interest. few? Yeah, yeah. Right. And I think um, a lot of VC firms are doing more that looks warm and fuzzy, like they're trying to behave or, or host events or do things that are more inclusive or have some, you know, like diversity or inclusion pitches. Uh, ESG investments, it's been a new word that's been trending. But even if you're doing those investments, are you doing them on equal terms? That's, that's a great like, point. That's the real future and the real change, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. accountability, not just did I back a woman entrepreneur so I've got a token female and I I didn't yeah. make 100% the same investment. Especially since the data shows that uh, women uh, outperform their male counterparts. They outperform um, with less money and significantly, giving, yeah. up, giving up more. Yeah. Uh, control and having less control over yeah. their, their But company. if they're getting term sheets that are that that are um, less favorable terms, you would then imply that they're higher risk, but they're not, right? Because that's what term sheets are supposed to reflect is the relative risk of the company. Yeah. So that's a good one, Zoe. All right, one that's last question. Thinking on my feet, Melissa. Look that's at that. That's a good one. I like it. It's a good one. Um, all right, last question. Looking into the future. All Bye, right. Zoe. Um, as an investor, what is something you are actively looking to change in terms of how you make investment decisions in the next year or beyond, i.e. I will absolutely not invest in co-CEOs, post-Series A, <laughs> companies with zero diversity, despite crazy good revenue, etc. Love it. Yeah, co-CEOs. That's another topic for another day. Um, that's a great question. Um, yeah, a lot of ways to come at that. Um, I think one thing that's really important for me now that has changed is really looking at what 
resources is the founder going to need to be successful in the C-suite? I think we tend to really overlook the realities that first-time founders or, or women or people of color or really any founder, um, man, woman, who doesn't come out of a network of privilege where there was just tons of informal education happening uh, all, all the way around this business building. I don't think people realize when you don't come out of that, how much you have to learn by effort versus osmosis. Like it's just, it is really, it's, it's a real thing and it shouldn't be shameful and we shouldn't like people, you, I know like I kept a lot of that stuff quiet. I didn't want anyone to know that I didn't know something uh, because I was the first person in my family to go to college, right? I didn't, I, I just had to learn to act like I was sophisticated. And I think when I think about investing now and, and wanting to advance our goals to invest in a more just and, and equitable way to invest in um, just more, more interesting founders like geography, um, race, gender, background, like just not really sticking to the coasts and not sticking to the traditional stuff. You have to ask that question very honestly and transparently. And I don't want to invest in founders who won't let me in to that question. You can be a little nervous when I ask it. I, you can even screw it up in the first meeting and answer it kind of wrong and be kind of like bloviating. But as long as I, you know, if I'm gentle with you and I give you time and I and I earn your trust because that you have to trust me before you can be honest with me about about your own insecurities about your knowledge base. If but if if we can't get there, I I can't invest in you because uh, it's gonna affect our relationship going forward and it's gonna prevent me from giving you the best version of me and my fun that I can give you. So I think I love all the industries, I love all the verticals, I love all the things, um, but I really think focusing on the C-suite support that a founder is going to need if they didn't come out of one of those networks of privilege um, is just something that is, I, I, I need to understand that. And I need you to feel okay with me close to your vulnerabilities. I think that's um, it. I know we don't, we're not supposed to comment too much, but if there's anybody who's listening and is uncertain about opening up uh, to their board, um, or their investors, I will say I have created a very open and transparent relationship with Melissa. And um, she often has coached me on allowing me to vent to her how I actually feel and then write something much more polished. Um, Blow it out over here so yep. it comes out over here. Um, and that has been life-changing as an experience for me. Uh, and I, I never really had that outlet where I could fully trust somebody, where I could say exactly what I felt and then turn around and say what would actually get a deal done. Um, and the goal is to get the deal done, right? That's right. And yep. You also need to have that moment of frustration, but you really should do it with someone you trust. And um, I have built that rapport with Melissa, and I would say it's been life changing for me. Yeah. And well, there's some really thorny issues we've had to work on together. And, and I just, you know, I think about you and I as a new generation. I mean, I'm older than you, so I can't say I'm a new generation. I'm like the tail end of the old generation, and you're the head, and you're the head of the of the of the new generation, right? So that's why we bump up against each other. You know, I think like when we'll, we can end on this sentiment, like I mean the best thing you and I can bequeath to the next generation is, is a better journey. And yeah. a, a better journey doesn't just mean make more money. It means have a better experience, be more fulfilled, achieve more of your goals and be happier. 
um, because we're like, we get one time on, on the planet, right? And I think that's something that we have that power to do as a new generation to help, you know, those girls that are 12, 13 years old now that we're gonna see in just a couple of years, you know, yeah. hopefully some of these uh, opportunities, lessons and resources will be there for them in a way that it wasn't there for us, so. All right, that's it. That's the end of our segment. So um, thank you, Zoe Berry, and thank yeah. you for um, for all the ways that you help founders and the incredible. You are building a story that we're gonna we're gonna keep telling, so that the next uh, the next lady doesn't um, look around and not see not see that. So thank you again, uh, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you.